So uh, we're back uh, here on Patreon. So we're going to continue this discussion now about uh, the demand for highly repressive authoritarian policies, which often come uh, from below, from those people who are desiring some basic stability in their lives, um, who are unable to achieve that because of the role of, well, of uh, criminal markets, and especially, in particular, uh, the sort of violence uh, which plagues large swathes of Latin America, and even countries which were relatively uh, immune from this or or less touched by that sort of violence, um, countries like Argentina, um, where it became somewhat of a factor even in the last election. Um, Listeners can check out that episode. Um, Though there, you know, it's interesting to note that the main law and order candidate um, of the traditional right um, didn't win right? Um, didn't even make it to the second round. Um, so, and there Millet is trying something different. Maybe we can touch on that in, 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 uh, in a little bit, but nevertheless, the case remains that, you know, from Brazil to Colombia to Mexico and everywhere in between, um, violent crime is a very ongoing concern and one to which a lot of the, the left across the region doesn't really have much of an answer other than the usual, measures of poverty alleviation, which, mm-hmm. um, as Juan has already said, doesn't always correspond uh, to an improvement in, in the security situation. I mean, I know from my own experience in Brazil, um, or from, you know, from, <laughs> from my knowledge of Brazil, that the period that, of, of Lula's government and, and Dilma's government, which succeeded it, uh, which oversaw, you know, impressive growth, that period actually coincided with an increase in violent crime. So these things, yeah, yeah, it's, exactly it's right. not so simple. Um, anyway, so this is a very difficult and intractable problem. Um, and it's a situation, just to, before I bring uh, Juan back in, um, there is a decline in demand for democracy, decline in support for democracy. I mean, just to, to cite something from Latin Barometro, which uh, is a big survey, which I think surveys something like 20,000 people um, every for every edition um, of the survey, that the proportion of the population in the region say who say that they do not care about or prefer an authoritarian regime to democratic government has grown from 34% to 45%. Um, and that's, I think, quite significant. Um, for a lot of people, democracy, such as it is, is a word that signifies perhaps instability, precarity in work and life, um, and not the guarantee of, of a good life or the guarantee of rights for themselves. So um, I think this is the context in which Bukelismo has a certain appeal, and not just appeal to opportunistic right-wing politicians, but has a certain, you know, creates a certain demand, at least, amongst the populace as well. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, there's a lot to parse there. But I I guess I'll start out saying that, honestly, other than Bukele, um, on the right, and you could even dispute whether Bukele is on the right, but but I I think that's fair. Uh, Most Latin American conservatives honestly don't have an answer to crime either. But to voters, it certainly seems more compelling, uh, if you, regardless of whether it's effective or not. 
And frankly, I would say that Manuela policies have really only been effective in El Salvador. And that's that's very, there, there's specific aspects as to why. Uh, actually, on the contrary, um, a lot of times Manuela policies make things worse. And that was previously the case in uh, Central America and much of the region. Something that you said that was key that obviously, this is obvious, but a lot of people don't realize this. Uh, when there's high homicide rates, that necessarily means that there's conflict either between different criminal actors or between criminal actors and the state. This is the reason why in Mexico you saw homicides skyrocket after Felipe Calderón declared war, quote unquote, and, and decided to tackle Mexico's cartels using a militarized strategy that's continued ever since. Um, and, yeah, and then there's the kingpin's kingpin strategy that also makes things worse. Where they uh, where, where we explain what that is? Yeah, you just go after the uh, leaders of each individual cartel, and the problem with doing that is that you re, you you know you'll arrest and then extradite you know let's say the leader of Sinaloa, and then that'll cause a lot of infighting within the cartel, and also then our another cartel will try to encroach on the other's territory, and it creates more violence. It spirals out of control. But um. Having said all of that, the interesting thing about Bukele and why he's been successful, I would argue that the state of exception would not have worked if it had begun before it did. Why? The state of exception that started in 2022 um, took place after Bukele had essentially co-opted all pertinent um, and independent institutions of the state. He packed the Supreme Court entirely so that they, you know, and because of doing so, he could then perpetually extend the state of exception, something that wouldn't have happened either. He took uh, his, uh, in the midterms, he took control of, with super majorities of the legislature. So they'll back, they, they were subsequently backed any changes to the law that he wanted. He also replaced the attorney general who was actually investigated him, uh, investigating him and his administration for negotiating with gangs. Uh, and so this speaks to the relative advantage of uh, autocracies in combating crime versus democracies. And yes, it's in a sense, it's that, that it can be more repressive, but it's also that there's more of a uniform um, vertical implementation of policies. You don't have squabbling actors in the courts and in the legislature and in the press that are constantly sabotaging you. It's like, no, well, this is a dictatorship. I arrest someone, they automatically go to prison. This is the case in China. And so the unflattering comparison that you'll never hear any conservatives bring up is Bukele's regime resembles a nearby one that is also has extremely low rates of crime, the one headed by one tyrannical Daniel Ortega. Yeah. And you, you look at... Uh, the history of Latin America and even contemporaneously, some of the countries with the lowest rates of crime today are Cuba and Nicaragua, especially relative to their Caribbean and uh, Central American peers. The one exception to the current dictatorships is um, Venezuela. I would argue that that's because it's a failed state. But um, and I'll, I'll finish up here. There, there's a, and I, and I forget where this is from, actually. I, I read one time a great article mentioning how the Brazilian military dictatorship killed, like, I think only like 600 people, right? They, they, you know, they, they were more famous for torturing. And I'm not condoning any of this, by the way. 
But the amount of people that have been killed subsequently since the end of the dictatorship, you know, the dictatorship lasted 20 years and 20 years after the end of the dictatorship, the amount of people that have, uh, that were killed due to crime was, I don't know how many thousands. So again, this just speaks to the relative advantages of uh, authoritarians and being able to unilaterally act on, um, in this case, crime versus democracies where there are checks and balances and things are a lot more difficult. But that speaks to the fact that it takes time to be able to strengthen these institutions so that they work pro- properly. Yeah. No, I, mean, I don't think anyone's kind of debating whether dictatorships work in that regard. I, I mean, that, <laughs> right. Um, the, the, there is a nice little, I mean, we had the, the previous guest mention a, a piece by, um, by Martin Caparros uh, and whose term uh, efficacy um, seems appealing or useful here insofar as it. Uh, speaks to, you know, the, the government of those who are capable of achieving something desired by many, regardless of the way in which they do it. So this isn't necessarily the, the sort of um, old ideological adherence to traditional conservatives who spoke of morality, defending the right way of doing things, a traditional order, etc. Um, nor are they necessarily the sort of anti-communist cold warriors who are saying, well, we need to, you know, we need to uh, destroy communism. We need to destroy the communists within our ranks. We're subverting our society by any means possible. It's not those things. There's something. It's something very, I think, particular to our ideological or really kind of post-ideological age, um, where democracy gets eroded and that opens the space for just those who promise to kind of get things done, but without any of the baggage, I think, of, of traditional conservatism. And I think Bukele is, is perfect in that regard. You know, he's kind of a hip, new millennial guy with Bitcoin and, world and whatever. Dictator. World school's dictator. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it, it, because of the comparison with, with Nicaragua, Nicaragua and, and, and Ortega, um, I wanted to highlight one thing that that um, is in this piece by Martin Caparros. I'll, I'll, for those who uh, read Spanish, I'll, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, but he tells the story of a Salvadorian and a Nicaraguan, uh, both uh, both exiles, both journalists in exile, uh, comparing their uh, their histories and, and realities. Um, and the, uh, the the Salvadorian says to the Nicaraguan, uh, you guys at least have a dictator who used to be a, a, a guerrilla commander who defeated a large dictatorship. You know, he did something like our guy. You know, he he's just a, a, a daddy's boy. You know, who used to be a who used to be a, di- yeah. a, a discotheque uh, manager, which was you know Bukele. Um, so you know, well, you can always uh, you can always look enviously to to to. To, to the other side, a grass is always greener, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But anyway, I think this does point to um, a tendency a, a, across the, the continent and places where um, democracy, um, such as it is, is less consolidated. Um, these figures, I think, have an easier run in, in being able to show results as Bukele does, and Bukele has done, supposedly, um, to, to kind of further uh, deepen their their rule and um, roots within various, um, various, various uh, institutions, um, like you know, packing the Supreme Court or, or, or so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll actually give a, a, a kind of argument in favor and an argument against this uh, based on the uh, poll you uh, mentioned from Latino Bar- Barometro. Actually, I guess I'll say three things. First, uh, you know, people are idiosyncratic and the way they might conceive of democracy uh, is sometimes different. It's possible we could look at a poll in El Salvador and, you know, they, they might think that they have the strongest democracy ever. 
But uh, alternatively, you look at polls, for instance, in like Chile and Argentina, where comparatively crime is quite low, in some cases, even lower than in the United States, at least in terms of homicides, you, you can parse this and that like, you know, theft might be higher, or kidnapping and stuff like that. But um, especially cell phones, but uh so polls, yeah, in Chile say that something like 50-something, 60% would approve of a Bukele-style crackdown. And you look at that and say, what the hell is going on here? Mm. I mean, homicides aren't really that high. But at the same time, you know, people's perception of crime is relative. Chile had such a low homicide rate that I think it used to be like three or four per 100,000. It's gone up to six. For the average citizen, it's like, oh, my God, there's an there's a crisis. It's an crime explosion, to yeah. Exactly, exactly. Similar in Argentina. At the same time, though, um, the interesting thing is that candidates that have run on instituting a Bukele-style crackdown have not done very well. Ecuador is a good example of this. They had this, this really interesting guy, essentially a mercenary who fought in Ukraine in Syria, who, uh, John <laughs> Topic, <laughs> yeah, uh, he... Uh, a campaign on instituting a Bukele style of crackdown to clamp down against crime. And he didn't make it to the second round. Interestingly, the two candidates that made it to the second round, at least in terms of their rhetoric, were very moderate, especially on crime. Actually, on security, they had basically the same policies. It's like, yeah, maybe militarize a little bit, uh, try to clean out the prisons, uh, send people to prisons, you know, on a like penal colony in the Pacific. But um, compared to Topic, that, that was very, very moderate. Similarly, in Guatemala, Suri Rios, she didn't do very well in the election. Um, I think in Peru, Rafael Lopez Aliaga wanted to institute a crackdown of that story. He didn't do very well. Then again, technically, no one did very well in Peru. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> That's a whole other story, I think, for me. Peru deserves its own dedicated episode because there's yeah, too many yeah, yeah. things oh, to oh, untangle yeah. there. Oh, yeah. But, um, and actually, this uh, might be a good segue into the exportability, the, the, the logistical operational exportability of the Bukele model. Uh, on the other hand, you could argue that Bolsonaro essentially campaigned on instituting a Bukele style crackdown and say, yeah, let's just kill all the criminals, shoot them, arm all the population. But in practice, uh, once he became president, there really was not that home, not that much that he could do on a national level to change. Well, and, and that's that's because of uh, Brazil's federal constitution. Federal, exactly. The, you know, the, the the military police forces are state based. Um, the federal mm-hmm. police, that's not really its its job. Um, so what you did see was because of his rhetoric. A, some increase in in um, unlawful killings by police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they basically, it, especially right in certain states like like Rio, with uh, what was this guy? This horrible guy, um, uh, Wilson Witzel, who the, Witzel, who the later, yeah, 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 was removed from office like every other uh, governor of Rio, and then ha- would like fought with Bolsonaro too. So, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the. Um, yeah, Bolsonaro, I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, for all the talk about his various um, kind of ideological aspects, it was the tough on crime thing that most sold, I think, and a, and as being an outsider yeah, and definitely. against the political class. And I think that element um, is worth adding to the Bukele story, because as you say, there's pl- plenty who come in, um, you know, saying they're going to be tough on crime. Um, but I don't think, and my impression is that it needs something else 
not just the authoritarian crackdown, but some indication that this politician is different from the rest, presents some vision of change and of incorporating, embodying change in some way of being not wedded to the old party system, etc. And it, it, again, it's, it is, um, has to be part of a kind of anti-establishment message. And, and Bolsonaro was able to unify those two, Bukele yeah, unifies those two. And I'm not sure these other examples that you've already mentioned do. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that this just speaks to the fact that there are multiple issues that sway voters that um, sometimes security won't be enough. I mean, Bukele didn't run on a crackdown on instituting a crackdown on crime. On the contrary, he won because exactly he represented a change, and uh, and some of these other candidates, you know, ostensibly would represent a change in their own respective countries. But uh, you know, and the the example in Ecuador is that you know people also voted for Noah because they thought he was kind of you know charismatic and good looking, and he seemed like a uh, like a successful businessman that at least, you know, cared minimally about the poor seemingly. So there, you know, as in any election, there are different issues that appeal to voters. And it's hard to say that one single issue determines uh, a particular election. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So just, I mean, kind of winding towards the end here, but I wonder um, the context of crime in, in Latin America, which is, I guess, is what we're talking about now and um, criminal networks and the political responses to it. Um, one element which sprung to mind as, as kind of I was reading and preparing for this is the element of religious transition, um, the growth of evangelical Christianity across the region, um, particularly in countries like Brazil, like, like Guatemala, like Honduras. In Central America, especially, yeah. Yeah. Um, some countries remain pretty immune from this and others um, are mm-hmm. real hotbeds of, um, of an explosion, really, in um, evangelical Christianity. I think something like one fifth of, of uh, all of Latin America now is, is evangelical Christian, which is um, remarkable for a, a region that people would associate with Catholicism exclusively. Um, certainly in Brazil, the kind of hard on crime approach uh, definitely has its uh, appeal, particularly amongst evangelical Christians, because of a uh, their own doctrine and sense of uh, ne- the necessity of social ascent and of moral discipline and behavioral mm-hmm. discipline um, mm-hmm. in trying to kind of get by. Right, you're going to um, join this church, you're going to sort out your life, you're going to stop drinking, stop taking drugs, you're going to work hard. Um, you, through your faith, will be rewarded through. Uh, monetary ascent <laughs> you you know you're going to make you're going to make money through this um and if only the state would take care of the bad guys bad actors um the devil behind every corner uh we would be okay and i i wonder um to what extent you know from the demand side kind of for for kind of authoritarian crackdown for the ability to live some sort of dignified life whether the that goes in tandem with uh, the growth in, in evangelical christianity I'm not the right person to ask about this, but I would say that the prevalence of uh, evangelical Christianity in some of these countries definitely uh, inclines the population more towards the right. So what you see in Central America is that left-wingers have a very, very hard time getting elected. Even the FMLN that was in power for 10 years, I mean, they scrape by by the skin of their teeth. Um, in both the 2009 and 2014 elections, and then they didn't have majorities in Congress either. Uh, a lot of times what you'll see in Central America actually is that the elections will be between two right-wingers. <laughs> so, uh, and, and clearly in Brazil, as the evangelical population has grown, the right 
has grown more powerful uh, politically. And so, yeah, that'll naturally uh, contribute more towards the appeal of politicians that will campaign on instituting crackdowns and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think the, that is the evidence so far, but, you know, evangelicals tended to lean towards the left. I mean, when they were a much smaller proportion of the population, yeah, well, yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. the left, and then the, yeah, it's yeah. something that happens in the late nineties. Anyway, so there's these, there's these big social transformations. Maybe we just to put a pin in that for now, um, we'll return <laughs> to it in a separate episode. Um, but there is, um, a big social transformation underway uh, in, in Latin America and beyond indeed, um, both in terms of the religious transition and um, the questions of criminal markets and the relationship with the state, the erosion of state sovereignty. So um, lots to discuss there. One final, um, I guess, discussion point, because it, it came up in um, a recent episode that we did actually for listeners, it'll be coming out next uh next week so um <laughs> listener you don't know about this yet but but you will uh but we discussed kind of you know the the face politics in the west particularly has been more or less a face-off between technocracy and populism for the past two decades really um and whether we were speculating as to whether um there would be um some bonapartist figure um or bonapartist solution to uh, this face-off, something that was able to kind of thread the line between the two um, and was able to, um, to the extent that their that politics is, is um, configured by this confrontation, would be able to overcome this confrontation, provide stability and order, um, and, and basically resume and overcome somehow technocracy and populism. Anyway, so we were speculating about this, and it occurred to me that perhaps Bukele in some way represents that, you know, this kind of an authority, very authoritarian sort of third way of being able to overcome um, and, and represent in some ways, large swathes of society by by doing both the technocratic and the populist thing at once. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, just to conclude. Yeah, it's an interesting point, because Bukele is clearly competent, even before he essentially took over all of the institutions of the country uh he was clearly very skilled at negotiating with the gangs which as i said there's a learning curve to these things there's only so much success you can get from these uh, unless you have a skilled negotiator and also uh, a good agreement or a, a, a sustainable agreement also but um with, with whatever criminal group um his security minister, for instance, also seems to be very, very competent. He, the, the, there's a strategy to these things. Also, when you use repression, the what, what is it? The um, like, uh, I forget the acronym. But in uh, Brazil, the um, the the pacification effort in in Rio. Yeah, a lot yeah, of the UPP was it anyway? Yeah. A lot of their success was attributed that they focused on fighting the gangs in Rio territorially, block by block, instead of just going after leaders, uh, etc. And the during the state of exception, that does seem to be the view that they have focused on a regional level in uh, slowly gaining back tor- territory. Uh, that seems to be a lot more effective than going after kingpins. So inherently... Uh, I'm a big critic of technocrats, most of whom I, I, I like to quote AMLO um, 
in Latin America, leaders like to just respect technocrats who copy all the bad from abroad. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But what you need, obviously, are your own technocrats that know what they're doing to implement your policies. So Bukele, yeah, he um, he, he definitely de- de- represents a kind of departure from the traditional technocracy that we see in Latin America. All right, excellent stuff. Uh, Juan, uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, this is something to be repeated. Uh, We'll talk about uh, Colombia and about Mexico uh, in in the future. Um, But for now, that's it. Uh, Listeners, thank you for being with us. Thank you for subscribing uh, to BungaCast. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Catch you later. Bye-bye.